back to What China Wants with me, Sam Olson, and as always, Stuart Patterson. So, amidst the current financial turmoil, it's easy to think that the only country affected is the one that you yourself live in. That, however, would be wrong. The financial world seems to be in a state of flux, not known for quite some time, wherever you are. And Stuart and I are fortunate to be joined today by someone who has described me as one of the smartest guys in the market, Merrick Chapman. Merrick, formerly of Elliott, is now the principal at Hedge Analytics and an investment industry professional with 40 years of experience of macro investing. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sam and Stuart. It's great to be here. And so today, we, the specific title of the podcast, I suppose, is is the current monetary cycle accelerating bifurcation between China and the West? And I suppose to kick things off, it would be great to hear, you know, can you give our listeners a quick overview of the extent of that current economic turmoil in the world and some of the factors that are causing it? Yes, I'll have a go. The Fed has raised interest rates at an, an amazing rate, almost 400 basis points in seven months which is, um, in, I, I think it's fair to say in my lifetime, that's unprecedented at that speed, especially coming from effectively zero interest rates and also a huge monetary stimulus in the form of QE. So there's been a, a monetary shock, which is reflected in stock markets down a lot, bond markets down a lot, presumably housing markets down a lot, and the dollar up a lot. But it really depends on who you speak to, whether this is turmoil or not. Certainly, if you're holding crypto, it feels like turmoil. But uh, the Fed itself doesn't describe it that way and certainly doesn't look like they're finished tightening yet. So Fed Governor Christopher Waller this week said, I've been just amazed to watch rates go up for the seven or eight months and the markets haven't collapsed. We don't have a financial crisis or anything along those lines. We've got to have a good level of rates, I assume he means, and we've got it there fast. And we didn't break anything. We're certainly not breaking anything in the labor markets in terms of unemployment. Households are in good shape and household balance sheets are in very good shape. So he sounds like everything's fine. But uh, I think if you look elsewhere outside America, and don't forget the Fed as it says in their mandate, the Board of Governors and the Federal Reserve Banks and the Open Market Committee work together to promote the health of the US economy. They're not there to promote the health of the world economy. And that's kind of what we're seeing. UNCTAD, a division of the United Nations, recently got very worried in its 2022 report that the Fed tightening in particular was going to lead to a slowdown, a global recession, and a vicious economic cycle in the developing world. So it depends where you stand, really. Uh, Murray, brilliant. So we'll talk about the rest of the world shortly, because of course, a lot of our, our listeners will remember the early 1980s cycle and the impact that had on Latin America and the subsequent need for Brady bonds and, you know, the criticism that the uh, US monetary authorities came under then from uh, what we now call the global south. But can we just firstly turn to the United States itself? So in simple terms, for non-economists, can you explain to us how quantitative easing, the size of the Fed's balance sheet, 
and the behavior of the commercial banks in the United States, how those factors interacted with each other when quantitative easing was a thing, and and how now that monetary policy has reversed and is tightening, what we can expect and what might be the ramifications for the United States of that. Sure. So quantitative easing is um, the purchase by the central bank of assets, in particular government bonds, but not only government bonds. So the effect of that, according to Bernanke, Ben Bernanke, the Fed chair in days gone by, was to to depress the yield curve, so keep rates low. Not only did the Federal Reserve reduce short-term interest rates, the federal funds rate, but quantitative easing was designed to force down yields across the whole yield curve. The effect, it succeeded to a large degree. Interest rates went down for a very long time. It, it should be said it's not just quantitative easing that did this. It was also forward guidance where the central bank basically promised that they weren't going to raise interest rates for a very long time. That also helped yields down. But but the actual accumulation of, of assets had a, a couple of other effects. First of all, it forced, through what's known as the portfolio effect, it forced natural investors of in treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities out of those because the Fed was buying them, large amounts of them. So they had to be bought from somewhere, and those people who held them had to go and find somewhere else to park their money. So that was the portfolio effect. But the other effect it had was on the liability side. And we shouldn't forget that liabilities of central banks are to most definitions, that's how you define the currency. So the liabilities side of the balance sheet grew to match their asset side, obviously, because it's a balance sheet. And those liabilities were reserves. And reserves are used only by the financial system, only by the banks that interact with the Fed. And more recently, in some degree, the money market funds in the US, but not the general public. So what has happened through QE has been a, an intensification, if you like, of the financialization of the US economy. It's very much an insider's system now. And the Fed has played a large role in that. Those are a couple of the big effects. I should say also that the reserves are the primary settlement medium for financial markets nowadays. It used to be different before the global financial crisis a little bit, but it's changed a lot since then. And now reserves in the system, central bank reserves, are the major medium by which banks settle between themselves securities uh, transactions. So that's not just bank transactions, that's anybody's transactions that require a transfer between banks. So in a sense, the increase in reserves has also increase the liquidity in the settlement system, which in itself helps transactions in securities markets. So there's been a number of effects from QE, all of which have helped yields down, equities up. And that is now reversing. So now this is all reversing. What what should we expect or what are you seeing in US commercial banks that gives you either cause for hope that there will be a soft landing despite these um, interest rate rises, or worries you that there won't be? Well, I, I think you can, it's not completely clear either way, but certainly in, in the case of the domestic US economy, there are some mitigating circumstances. First of all, they are all dollar-based. Everybody in the US is dollar-based, and so they're not 
directly affected by the rise in the dollar that's been created by this change in Fed policy towards tightening. The other thing which is very evident is that as the Fed expanded its balance sheet, the other side of that were the commercial banks' balance sheets. And as the commercial banks' balance sheets were forced by QE to take on more central bank reserves, that actually displaced loans from their balance sheets. So they swapped one set of assets, namely loans, the traditional asset of commercial banks, were forced out by the creation of reserves which are used by the central bank to pay for QE. And that's now reversing. So to some extent, the increase in loans is a mitigant for the public because interest rates are going up, but actually so are loans. Is this not the ultimate irony that most people would think that rising interest rates dampen the demand for loans and supply of loans. And and that's actually how monetary policy is meant to work. Whereas what you're describing here is the fact that actually, as commercial banks reserves at the central bank fall through QT, they're actually expanding loans, which is kind of not necessarily what the Fed wants, is it? Or or is it? Uh, well, like the Fed doesn't make loans directly itself to end users. So it's it's up to the banks to decide how they apportion their balance sheet. So yes, loans are going up. However, the actual size of commercial banks' balance sheets is shrinking only, only for the last month and a half, two months. But that is a factor that the Fed has influenced. They are causing the shrinkage of, of balance sheets. But within those balance sheets, there's a compositional change. And the compositional change has switched away from reserve assets and securities towards loans. So yeah, I should say also that higher interest rates means these, these loans are more expensive than they used to be. And in some cases, it might be the case that consumers and companies may be forced to take the loans simply to consume or to stay afloat. So, you know, it's not necessarily a totally joyful. This isn't <laughs> this isn't a total offset, but it is a mitigant for the Fed tightening for domestic US borrowers that is not generally available for non-US borrowers. So maybe that's the good opportunity to move on and talk a little bit about the rest of the world and and what this monetary cycle might mean for the relative standing of the United States and China um, around the world. I mean, maybe as a starting point, we could just discuss briefly what A, the strong dollar, and B, high US interest rates mean for many countries in the global south who, during the period of easy US monetary policy, which, let's face it, had been most of the time, frankly, since uh, since the global financial crisis, uh, have borrowed dollars. And, you know, do you see significant duress there? And you, what might this mean for their use of the dollar in financial transactions going forward and potentially even trade? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really uh, absolutely central question. What you're raising here is truly um, both absolutely fascinating and also really consequential. The dollar carry trade was massive. You can see it in numerous statistics, but a good one to look at is the BIS international debt securities issued in dollars, which is uh, non-US issuance of dollar debt, what is often called eurobonds. So issued by non-US residents. And that's gone from 8% roughly 8% of GDP 
around the time of the GFC, global financial crisis, to a peak of about 14% of global GDP towards the end of 2020. And it's now down to 12%. But that that's 12% of GDP. And a very large amount of that has gone to what you term the global south. But a significant subset of that, in Asia in particular, has been intermediated by Chinese banks. And what we're seeing now is Chinese banks aggressively reducing their dollar balances on both sides of the balance sheet. At the same time, this deleveraging globally is both helping the dollar rise. It's, it's been caused by a dollar rise, but effectively, this is, a, this is a close of a dollar short. You can think of the dollar carry trade as a dollar short. Well, now that short everywhere is being closed. Uh, and so that's in itself is forcing the dollar higher. And you can see it quite clearly that as the dollar balances in Chinese banks have gone down, starting effectively, they really started in about February this year, coinciding with the invasion of Ukraine. And those dollar balances have gone down at the same time as the renminbi has also gone down against the dollar very sharply. Not only the renminbi, other currencies have also fallen. This factor has pervaded what you term the dollar south, and I can term it that as well. But it includes China as a sort of intermediary as well as a victim of this. So can I just um, ask from my position, sort of more interested in the politics side, just to be clear, do we see now, uh, especially in 2022, countries either getting more exposed to the dollar or countries getting less exposed to the dollar as a matter of political choice? Or is this kind of just a normal function of cycles, economic cycles? I think it can be both. It's certainly part of the cycle uh, as interest rates in the US go up from effectively zero. You know, this is a partly an unwind of, of, from an extraordinarily low level of interest rates, which is what the carry trade was predicated on. So it's certainly cyclical. It could also be structural in the sense that um, there is a geopolitical tension. It's very clear that China does not want to be so reliant on the US. And it's very clear equally that the US does not want to be so reliant on China. So in a sense, there is a geopolitical imperative to split the globe or bifurcate the globe. And that's, to some extent, that's working hand in hand with what's happening monetarily, where the Fed policy is forcing holders of dollar shorts, namely debt, out of those holdings. So I think those two things can go together, but it can also be, it can be both cyclical and structural. I guess, Myrick, this is the first sort of US tightening cycle that we've seen in which China has been a major creditor to um, third countries, to the global south in terms of its, its lending or what have you. The shape of its international assets has changed very dramatically from being almost exclusively in foreign exchange reserves, where it was a credit to the US government, to now uh, a, a much more diversified set of assets, including a, a large amount of loans, uh, largely intermediated by the big state-owned commercial banks and the development banks. And so China hasn't really had an exp any experience of an international lending cycle gone wrong. How do you think they'll cope? And what do you think their reaction will be? Do you think that this will make them question 
their engagement with the global south, of which Belt and Road is a part, but it's it's largely been debt financed? Or do you think that they'll look to capitalize on the financial straits, if you like, of, of, of some of their debtors to, to to put more money onto them, but maybe on different terms and, and to accumulate equity and, and sort of it will accelerate the engagement, but make it more assertive. I mean, it could, could go either way, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, I think there is. Um, it's early days. I, I don't think we're yet finished with the Fed tightening cycle. And by the way, China is monetarily easing. So they're going the opposite direction at the moment. So we have a we have a real tension in monetary policy between the two. But it, a few salient points, I think, um, if you look at the balance sheets of uh, the Chinese banking system, if you look at the overseas loans, about eighty percent of them, the loans made overseas, were made in dollars. And it's really clear that since February, if you translate those loans holdings into renminbi the level actually hasn't changed much what's just what has changed a lot is the dollar denomination so they are maintaining their level in renminbi terms at pretty much the same level which to my mind this you know raises the question well is there some authority in china or some regulation which is saying well you mustn't lend more than x amount of your renminbi based balance sheet overseas so I think that's an open question, but we're definitely seeing disengagement from the dollar lending, which was, for overseas loans, the dominant way in which China made its loans. But there's a a couple of interesting other wrinkles to this, which are relevant to your question about how this is going to unfold in terms of the relationship with the destination of these loans. At the same time, these lending is going down, and the actual part of the balance sheet, which is called portfolio investment, which who knows what's in there, but basically you can call it as equity. That's equity stakes in, in securities and, and other holdings. That's going up. And in dollar terms, that's going up as well. So even though their dollar balances in general are going down, their holdings of portfolio investment in dollar terms is going up. Now, I can't tell from looking at the data what's going on there. But one thing that does strike me is that perhaps we can ask the question of whether the loans are being foreclosed and in return, the equity that's behind that, that those loans supported is perhaps being accumulated by these Chinese banks. So there could be some form of debt for equity swap. That would make sense. I mean, we, we all know that some of the Belt and Road lending was particularly opaque and that some of the conditions could have been onerous, and that in some cases already Chinese banks and Chinese entities, not just the banks, have laid claim to assets in foreign countries. So there is evidence to support that. Whether that's actually what's happening or not is open for discussion, but certainly that's what the data may suggest. So there's a relationship which is definitely changing, I think. So to be clear, just to make sure that I understand what you're saying. US monetary policy is tightening and China is easing its monetary policy. And a consequence of both those things is that China is disengaging from the dollar, but at the same time is changing its its debtor relationship with other countries because a lot of the debts were originally produced in dollars and therefore 
Um, what we're seeing is the ultimate consequence is that if this debt for equity move is correct, China strengthening its hold in terms of influence over countries that it has done debt deals with in the past. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And that kind of makes sense. It fits what you think would be happening. It's just one uh, thing, one point I'd make is that when you do a debt for equity swap, you don't normally make the debtor happy. You make the debtor unhappy. So this may not be a an improved relationship that we're beginning to see between China and the rest of the global south. It may, in fact, be the beginning of a quite difficult relationship, which we referred to earlier in you know, terms of previous debt cycles in South America, where the Yankee comes in and asks for his dollar back. Well, now perhaps something similar is happening between Chinese banks and their recipient debtor countries outside China. Perhaps we can just finish with a slight diversion, but I think it's very relevant. And that's to talk just a little bit about uh, China's central bank digital currency, which obviously has been trialed. Initially, you know, if we had this conversation prior to COVID, people would have said, well, the most likely way that the central bank digital currency is going to spread internationally, at least initially, is through outbound Chinese tourism you know, in in destinations in Thailand and Cambodia, where uh, lots of Chinese tourists go, they'll use telephone wallet, smartphone wallets uh, to to spread the currency into these countries. Obviously, COVID um, has disrupted that route of internationalization, because there aren't any outbound tourists anymore. But but do you see the uh, central bank digital currency as being a, a sort of a serious threat dollar hegemony in at least Southeast Asia, if not the world? I think I'd bracket it along with whether foreigners willingly want to hold renminbi, either as reserves or as any other store of value. And my impression is the answer is no, they don't. They can be coerced into holding renminbi because uh, the Chinese state says we won't trade with you unless you do. But most international countries, traders, banks would be much happier accepting recompense or payment in dollars because dollars are readily transferable and are unlikely, although political interference is not completely absent from US dollar, it's a lot more absent than it is with renminbi, whether that's now or in the future. And I think underpinning the, the dollar, something which doesn't get enough airplay is the legal institutional framework behind the dollar. So if you have a dispute in dollars, usually you can appeal to some court which you generally think is going to give you a fair hearing. I don't think that's the case in Renimbi. I put the digital currency in the same same bracket. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more in the sense that um, the one thing you know about the, the US dollar is that the the price you pay for it has been derived by market conditions. And everyone who has a US dollar has been free to sell it uh, at any point in the last, well, at least the last 40 years anyway. Uh, whereas with the RMB, almost everyone who holds it is not allowed to sell it. And therefore, you actually have no idea what a market clearing price for the RMB would be. Marek, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We must, uh, we must have you back on uh, when we get to the other side of the hump in uh, the US interest rate cycle to assess uh, how the global bifurcation has indeed either accelerated or not 
uh, as a result of, of the interest rate cycle. Well, thank you very much. On, on that basis, I shall probably be speaking to you in about nine months' time. <laughs> <laughs> There's a controversial call. I look forward to it. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.